Well, let's go ahead and pray as we begin our maybe final study on the Great Tribulation. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord God, I just thank you for this evening. I thank you for the grace that you give. Thank you that you fill us with your spirit, that you guide us into all truth. We thank you for the word that you have revealed and provided for us. And I pray, oh, Lord, that we would look at it honestly and truly. And I pray that you would use it in order to impact our lives in the way that we live right now and the way that we speak in a world that is full of darkness and sin. Lord, we stand as lights, proclaiming your word and living your truth before this world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about the Great Tribulation, and we're just uh, reflecting on the book of Revelation. That is our primary source for understanding what is going to unfold or take place in the end times. And if uh, you haven't heard any of the previous lessons, well, there are some things that are a little bit different in my perspective and how I approach this than maybe what is popular And that is going to be true tonight as we wrap this up. But I don't mean any offense, and if you disagree with what I say, just just let it go by, and uh, we just keep on working together to understand the truth. So here are some of the things that we have covered so far. We have looked at these uh, topics concerning the Great Tribulation, the meaning of the word tribulation. Believers will experience tribulation. That is just regular tribulation in the world. Tribulation in the book of Revelation, and that's where we looked at all of the occurrences of the word tribulation in the book of Revelation in order to kind of ground us in understanding what the end times has to say about, uh, or what's going to happen in the end times concerning this idea of tribulation. And uh, then we looked at the horsemen of the apocalypse and their relationship to the final tribulation. Today, I want to, first of all, take a little bit of a diversion to talk about the scroll the scroll sealed with the seven seals. So for that, we need to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. So please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. And we know a little bit about the, the scroll that is sealed with seven seals, right? I think maybe if anybody of us have read these passages or heard somebody talk about them, we've, uh, we, we know and we understand a little bit about this, and the question that I want to ask is, who is the one who is able to open the scroll? All right, Jesus. Jesus is the one who is able to open the scroll. Now, you'll see how in this picture, the scroll, there are seven seals here, and there's a little bit of a difference of opinion as to what the scroll might have looked like. So I think the one position that I always heard of was that you break a seal and then unroll the scroll a little bit and read it and go th- and whatever happens unfolds. Um, you break the second seal, you unroll it a little bit more, or you, know, you unroll the next part as this one would have it, and so on and so forth all the way through the seventh seal. Another option is that it just simply has seven seals. You break one seal, something happens, you break all of the seals, and then you unroll the scroll and you find the contents there or the culmination of it. So anyway, I don't know which one it it is as uh, we go through this. Obviously, as we go through the text, one seal is broken, something happens on the earth. The next seal is broken, something else happens, and so on. So um, whatever. I don't think that that is too important. The fact is that the scroll is sealed with seven seals, and that at the breaking of each seal, 
there are events that take place upon the earth. Now, as you said, Jesus is the one who is worthy to unroll the scroll, to open the seals of the scroll. Jesus is the one who is worthy. Now, what I want to do is look at something that the book of Revelation does that maybe we're not too familiar with. What the book of Revelation does sometimes is it will take a portion of what it is saying, and that portion is meant not to cover a short period of time, but actually summarize a huge period of time. And I think when we're looking at the scroll, we find the first example of that in the book of Revelation. Now, here's what I mean. So we look at Revelation chapter 5, and it says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's the Father, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And look at verse 3, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. No one was able, no one in heaven was worthy or able to open the scroll. Now, the question is, how can that be? Isn't Jesus worthy? Hasn't he always been worthy? Where is he right now where no one is worthy to open the scroll? Where is he? Why is it that he doesn't come forth? Because John, verse 4, says, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. No one was found. Now, how could it be that Jesus is the one who is worthy, and yet at this point, he is not worthy? How could that be? Well, I would put forth to you that at this point he is not worthy because something significant in the life and work of Jesus has not happened yet. And what might that be? His death and resurrection. The work of Jesus had not yet taken place. So we know that Jesus came and was born at a particular time in history. And he grew up and he went to the cross in a particular time in history a couple of thousand years ago, and he died and he rose again from the dead. So as we go on, it says, verse 5, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So you see that? First of all, it describes Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, that is a reference to his lineage, his heritage, that he is of the seed of David. And so it, makes, it is a reference to his life on earth, his incarnation. This is, this is how I always like to describe Jesus. Um, I talk about the incarnation of Jesus. That is the time Jesus became a man. He was not always a man. He became a man. He was born uh, as a child, and we celebrate that during Christmas and so on. So, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has prevailed. And when does Jesus prevail? He prevails on the cross through his death and resurrection and his ascension to the throne 
of the Father. He has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. Notice the reference to the lamb, because it is as a lamb that he prevails to open the the scroll. Stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven heads, seven horns, excuse me, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, here's... Here's the point and why I bring this up. We can look at the book of Revelation, and I think a lot of times we see it as all future and all, all the things that it talks about are meant to describe the things that are going to happen right at the very end. Instead, however, we see from this example, I think, and from other examples, that the, the book of Revelation is much broader than that. It is not meant to describe just the events prior to the second coming of Christ, but in some places, I mean a lot of it does, but in some places like this, we see a much broader application of what is going on or the history of mankind, the history of creation, if you will, being depicted. So what happens here? is that you have the Father on the throne, and maybe this is sometime after the creation of the earth, and, and he is holding a scroll. And there is the search or the looking for one who is worthy to take this. And for a long time, there is no one who is worthy. Not until Jesus is born, and he dies on the cross, and he uh, bears the sins of the world and he rises in victory over sin and death and then ascends to the throne of the Father. Then he has prevailed and then he has overcome and then he is worthy to come and take the scroll and he does. He comes and he takes the scroll and he begins to open it. Now, all of that to say, and this goes back to something that we've already discussed, that I believe, and this is where you know some of us might differ and that's okay, I believe that the scrolls have all the scroll the seals of the scroll have already begun to be opened from the time of Jesus first coming from the time of his uh, work on the cross and so on this the, he began to open the seals of the scroll now what that means is that we are currently and have been in the end days or in the last days or the events of the book of Revelation have already begun to unfold all around us, going back to the first um, coming of Jesus. And of course, it'll culminate in the second coming. And so what that means is that once Jesus came at his first coming and he began to open the scroll, the seals of the scroll, the events of the end times had begun to be set in motion. And I think this is one of the reasons why the New Testament writers feel that we are in the last days or in the end times. So let me go over some verses first in Acts. Who is the author of Acts? Now, I know God is the primary author of all Scripture, but who is the instrument that God used to write the book of Acts? Luke. All right, so Luke, in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, it says, And it shall come to pass in the last days. You see the reference there? says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Now, this, this passage is in reference to what? 
the day of Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit. He's quoting from what book in the Old Testament? The book of Joel. All right, you guys are sharp. So he's quoting the book of Joel on the day of Pentecost at the coming of the Spirit of God, and he calls it, or he says, that it shall come to pass in the last days. So he's calling that time the last days, the, the, end, the end of times. That's Luke. We go to the next verse. This is 2 Timothy 3, 1. And um, who's the instrument God used to write the book of Timothy? Paul, Paul. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. So he's, I mean, in the context there, he's talking about the perilous times and the tribulation that they're facing and the persecution that the, the believers are facing. And, and he says, don't be, basically, just to summarize, don't be surprised by this. In the last days, these troubled times are going to come. So that's Paul. And we have Hebrews 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. He has in these last days, well, I should have read verse 1. He says, in times past, he spoke to the fathers by the prophets and so on. But in these last days, that's verse 2, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Um, who, who is the instrument that wrote, that God used to write the book of Hebrews? This is a trick question. <laughs> who? <laughs> All right, the letter is anonymous. I personally believe Paul wrote this one too, but um, we can't say that for sure. Uh, but uh, if it's Paul, well, that's just a repeat of Timothy. If it's somebody else, well, here you go. You got somebody else who said or referred to these days as the last days. All right, let's go to the next one. First Peter one twenty. who wrote this book? Peter, all right, he indeed was foreordained, talking about Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. All right, so Peter refers to these days as the last times. First John 2.18, who wrote this epistle? John, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. This is, now, this is an interesting verse, kind of going along what I've been saying here. Uh, there's coming at the end, prior to Christ's coming, there's coming the Antichrist. But since we're in the last hour, we're already seeing the presence of Antichrists, little Antichrists. You have little Antichrists and then the big Antichrist who is going to come. So I, I, I think the book of Revelation says something similar or conveys something similar. Now, you know, we have the tribulation and the trouble and the pestilences and all of these things. Did you hear that they, a new pestilence has arisen in China? And they believe that it's associated with those who have contact with animals out in, you know, out in the country. So I don't know what that's going to, I forget what they call it and but we shouldn't be surprised by that. It's just going to multiply, you know. It's just going to increase as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ. So we have all these little things, but when Christ is getting ready to come, then, you know, the, the big, guy, big guns come out. And, you know, the, the, the culmination of all of the history of the world is just going to, it's just going to get really intense during those days. All right? Uh, so that's John. Jude, who wrote the epistle of Jude? Jude did. He's one of uh, Jesus' half-brothers. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. So this is similar to the previous verse 
he's saying that because we're in the last times and we shouldn't be surprised that these mockers are coming. These are the antichrists that John, or, you know, referred to possibly. But anyway, so I gave you an example with six of six verses here, all by different uh, instruments of the New Testament that God used to write the New Testament, and they refer to these days as the last days. And I think it's because there's this understanding that, well, the events of the end times have begun to unfold. Now, that seems a little strange to us because of the, the amount of time that has passed. I mean, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus has come, and that just seems like a long time. And it just, from, from our perspective, our, our own logic just suggests that, well, you know, I live 70 years, and so the culmination of these things, or these things should just kind of unfold really quickly, a lot quicker than 2,000 years anyways. So that's why we have a little bit of trouble with it all, I think, but, uh, I, and I don't think that we have to be so unnerved by this. As I, I shared last time, even if you hold a different view that these things will take place at the end, at the end. We really haven't lost anything by suggesting that they are, they are already taking place because when you blow the trumpets, you have an intensification of the, the, the tribulation. When you pour out the bowls, you actually have the only judgments in Revelation, really, that are called the wrath or identified as the wrath of God. So there's an even greater escalation or intensification of the, the judgment. And then, of course, the devil just draws all the world to fight against Jesus, and Jesus appears, and that's just the final uh, battle of the whole thing. So as we get closer, uh, these things begin to unfold. All right, so any questions so far? Any questions or comments before we move on to the next great, to the next great controversial point? Any questions or comments or thoughts? All right, here it, is. here it is. This is the last one. Will believers go through the tribulation? All right. Again, I don't mean to offend anybody. I'm just trying to be honest and true to what I see in Scripture. And so this might be a little bit different than what you're used to. My, I believe that this question, by asking this question, you're already presupposing the way things are going to kind of be fulfilled in the end times. So how do we answer this? Because this is a really important question, and it's important because we have this desire as believers not to have to face those terrible things that are going to happen in the end days. And they are going to be terrible. I mean, I don't want to be here at all when it happens. I do not want to be here at all. And depending on when the Lord comes, I mean, if things continue like they are, chances are I will not be here, only because I'm going to get old and die at some point, which is fine, and that's the same thing. But if we're okay with facing death now, we, we shouldn't be afraid of anything that we might have to face in the future. Now, that refers to or, or you know, has to do with our facing of some illness or trouble or something that is, might befall us in next week or next month or who knows when. Or it uh, uh, might be whether we have to face something down the road concerning the escalation of the events of the end times. Uh, either way, it, we don't have to worry 
We don't have to worry. Why don't we have to worry? Because what? Our future is fixed. Why don't we have to worry? Let's, let's elaborate on that some more. I mean, Tyson's right. Our future is fixed. It's fixed in, it's fixed in Christ. What else? Why else don't we have to worry? Because we're saved. Why else? All right, because we belong to him. We, you know, we have been joined to him through baptism. What else? He's in control. We have the presence of the Spirit of God. That's right. He has made promises to his people, to the church. Why else? They are based on his, his word, his, his what? His promises. How does he feel towards us? He, his love. How does he act towards us even though we're sinning? We sin. He's, he's gracious and merciful, right? So, look, we just gave ten things. Ten reasons, and there's more that we could talk about. Why we don't need to be afraid or worry about anything that might be in front of us that we have to face. If we ever have to go through a difficult trial or testing or temptation in our lives, we know that he is right there with us, that he is working in our lives for, our glory, for his glory and our good, that he will never leave us or forsake us. I might be repeating myself here, but, but you get the idea, right? No matter what we have to face tomorrow, he is going to be present with us and hold us up and love us and forgive us and be glorified through us because we are his children, right? So we go forward and we have to then look at this question and, and what do we say about it? Will believers go through this tribulation? Now, I'm talking about the tribulation that we have identified in the book of Revelation that we have associated with Matthew chapter 24. I'm talking about that one tribulation, the only period of tribulation that the book of Revelation talks about that we found in Revelation chapter 7. Will believers have to go through that? Well, the answer is yes and no. You guys are all satisfied, right, now? <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> That's called the diplomatic solution there. <laughs> Joyce? Yeah. 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 Maybe we... Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's a good point. And remember, now Joyce, you weren't here for this, but we talked about the regular tribulation that all of us have to, to deal with, and that's what we're do, dealing with now. We also identified a great tribulation where there's this escalation of all of the, the trouble. And, and so, yes, the answer is yes, like Joyce said. Um, but there, there are some qualifications that we have to add to this. So first of all, there has to be this distinction that is made between um, persecution and trouble that the world sends our way and the judgment that comes from God against sin. We have to make this distinction. So might we be persecuted and experience trouble and temptation and trials on this earth that comes from, you know, the sinfulness of the world and the sinful people of the world. Might we have to experience that? Yes. Do we have to experience judgment that comes from God? Do we have to experience that? 
Judgment from God. Now, that's a trick question there. Will God judge us for our sins? That's right. We have been forgiven by Jesus Christ and His blood, and God will not judge us for our sins. We have been forgiven of our sins. All right, so that's the distinction. Sorry, I didn't mean to trick you guys, but, uh, but that's the distinction. We're going to experience persecution and trouble and temptation in the sinful and broken world and by people that have given themselves over to you know, the devil and the human ways and all of that. But as children of God, he is not going to judge us or bring judgment against us for our sins because we belong to Jesus Christ. and We have been forgiven of our sins. So that's an important distinction to make. Now, Jesus said, he's talking about the, tribu- you know, the trouble and the trials that you're going to face on this earth. But then he says this. He says this. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then do what? Flee. Now, he doesn't say, when the abomination of desolation comes, you will already be with me in heaven. He doesn't say that. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation come, flee. In other words, the assumption is you might still be present when the Antichrist appears on the scene and begins this great trouble and trial. So flee when you see him. Kevin? Yeah. Yeah, hold on to that. I'm going to, I'm going to mention that in a moment. All right, that's a good point. All right, so he, he says flee, f- pray that your flight isn't, um, you know, during a certain time of the year and pray that you're not with child. In other words, f- fleeing at that time of judgment will be very difficult for some people uh, because of the certain circumstances. So what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 24 with respect to the great tribulation, the Antichrist coming and the abomination of desolation, he is assuming that there is going to be the presence of believers at that time. All right? So the Antichrist, when he comes, we find in the book of Revelation, he will judge believers. Look at Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13 is the chapter on the beast, the Antichrist. It says in verse 7, It was granted to him to make war with the who? Saints. And to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, he's making war against the saints because the saints, the believers in Jesus, are his enemies. Not the rest of the world. What does the rest of the world do? What do the unbelievers do when the Antichrist comes? They take the mark of the beast. They do everything he says they believe in him. So uh, he he doesn't really turn on them yet, although the devil is nobody's friend. But anyway, the Antichrist specifically makes war with the saints and overcomes them, which means some of the saints, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, will perish. They will be overcome by the Antichrist. Uh, Let's turn to that passage in Revelation that talks about the Great Tribulation, Revelation chapter 7. And I just want to read verses 9 through 17. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, 
After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered and saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I, that's John, said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor the heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we see in this reference to the great tribulation, the ones who come out of it, or who have been persecuted in it, or who have lost their lives, they are believers in Jesus, and they stand before the throne there, arrayed in white robes, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Um, So anyway, uh, these references suggest that believers will go through the great tribulation. Now, this brings up the the point in... uh, that Kevin brought up about the Exodus or the time of the plagues in Egypt. And in Exodus 8, 22 and 23, and I don't think we remember this oftentimes, but how many plagues were there during the time of Egypt? There were 10, okay? What I don't think we remember is that the first few of them, everybody, everybody experienced the plague, not just the Egyptians. So, in Exodus chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, it says, talking about this next plague that was coming, In that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. Now, here is where, when we consider the question of will we go through the tribulation. A better question is, will we experience all the trouble of the tribulation? And the answer on that part will be no. Why? Because at some point, God makes a distinction between the world who has taken the mark of the beast and the believers who belong to him. And he protects them, just like he did in Exodus. So I think with the plagues in Exodus, there is this kind of foreshadowing of the end. The judgment begins to come and unravel upon the earth. And at first, maybe, like now, Everybody experiences the trouble and the tribulation, but there comes a point where God says, all right, these are mine and those are not. And if you read through Revelation, it's pretty fascinating the different ways in which there is a distinction that is made between God's people and the rest of the world. So one example of this is uh, the 144,000 who are sealed. So in Revelation chapter 9, verses 3 and 4 It says, then out of the smoke, this is one of the plagues here, then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to to harm the grass of the earth 
or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So you have this plague in which it goes forth, these, these locust kind of things go forth throughout the earth. Nothing green can they touch, nor can they touch anyone who has the mark of God on their head. But the rest of humanity they can touch. So there's a distinction right there between those who have been marked and sealed as belonging to God and the rest of the world. Now, here's the, here's the verse, and this is an important verse for us to con- consider. And this is the verse that is used to suggest that Christians will not be judged or experience the wrath of God. And this is really important. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you remember earlier I asked, will believers experience the judgment of God or the wrath of God? And the answer to that is no, because we are his. We are saved. And so um, while some people take the judgment or the wrath of God and kind of apply it to the whole book of Revelation, I think that's where kind of the mistake is. I I think we have to be a little bit more careful in marking out what is normal persecution and judgment and what is specifically designated as the wrath of God or judgment from God against those who have rebelled against him. So to kind of put this in perspective, who will be destroyed when the sky split apart and Jesus rides forth with his armies from heaven against the the earth. Who will be destroyed in that day, that final battle of Armageddon? All the men of the earth? No. Who will be destroyed? Those who do not belong to him. His enemies will be destroyed, not all people. So there will be a distinction that is made right up to the time he appears and he Uh, makes himself known. Revelation chapter 15, verse 1, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but we have here just kind of a designation specifically of God's wrath. So it says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, and these seven last plagues are the bowls. You remember the, the, uh, the bowl judgments? For in them, the wrath of God is complete. So in the bold judgments, you have kind of the completion or the fullness of the wrath of God. You also have verses in the book of Revelation that talk about how he treads the winepress of the wrath of God. You have those kinds of verses that are described or given to us in the book of Revelation, and they are meant to bring a specific judgment against the rebellious and sinfulness on the earth. Okay? So... Any questions about that before I just kind of wrap it up? Any questions, Philip? I guess to, there may be some spillover. So in other words, God's wrath is directed at his enemies. Yeah. But, you know, as there's famine and um, hardship, kind of like we experience the effects of sin now, yeah. some of that is going to, it's going to affect that's right, to some degree. And, and that's, in, in other words, my only caution here is that we have to be careful not to lump everything into one little you know, box. We, we have to be a little more careful to make distinctions that the book of Revelation makes. And as we do that, then maybe we can kind of be... It, this is not an easy task by any means. I mean, anything with respect to what's going to happen tomorrow is very challenging to understand. So we have to approach it with 
uh, care and humility. Uh, my only suggestion or exhor- exhortation is to be a little bit more careful of you know, making some finer distinctions rather than just kind of lumping everything in. So what Philip is saying is correct, and I think we experience that now. There is, there is a, the judgment because of sin that is present in the world, and that is because sin is present and the world is broken, and we experience hardship as a result of that. So here I am. I stand here as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. My sins have been forgiven. I have been adopted as one of his children. I belong to Jesus. Amen? And maybe you can say amen to that too. I belong to Jesus, right? But I am still good. I like that. But I am still in this body, right, which is troubled by sin, And because it's troubled by sin, not only my sin, but the sin, your sin, and the world's sin, right? It's all around us. Because of that, I experience trouble. I'm getting old. I'm having health issues. You know, that's that's not necessarily because I'm a bad person. It's because I live in this sinful flesh. I have not been glorified yet. And I experience heartache and trouble in the world because the world is broken. And so... I might have to go through a tornado or an earthquake or a hurricane. I might have to experience some kind of accident or somebody's treating me unfairly or unkindly or even wickedly and evilly. I might have to experience all of that because there is sin in the world, even though I belong to Jesus, right? So we keep on going. That's the spillover, I guess. You know, that, and, I, and that will continue as we get into, you know, closer and closer to the end times. So... As that happens, then, you know, there's going to become a a demarcation. And I do believe at some point the resurrection takes place and we are part of the armies of Jesus that return in order to bring, you know, be the instrument of, you know, part of his unfolding of the final plan of God at the end there. Lois? Yeah. 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 Now, uh, here's where I kind of diverge from another camp, not you all, <laughs> because I do believe, I do believe, in, even though there is the fulfillment of the promises to Israel in the church. We, we experience the fulfillment. We are, you know, the Israel of God. I believe that. But at the same time, I do believe at the end days there will be um, a specific fulfilling of the promises to the nation of Israel on this earth. I do believe that too. So somehow that kind of fits into all this. Now that's beyond the scope of what we've, I think, been studying. And, um, but like the 144,000, I do not... Some people... I just read a book that uh, said that that's just kind of a type of the church. It's talking about the church. But I don't believe that. I think it's talking about national Israel. And there's going to be a, a, a salvation, a revival among the Jewish people in the end days. I, I believe that. So uh, uh, as we approach here... There, again, this, there, there is so much in the book of Revelation. There is so much in the book of Revelation. And it's uh, often difficult to kind of unravel it all, but I, th- I don't know if I answered your question or not, but I, I do believe in a uh, revival of national Israel at, at the end times, which we have not seen yet, I don't think. All right, good. Any other questions?
All right, so let me just wrap it up here. Um, Revelation speaks of one period of great tribulation. Um, it is found within the events of, of the book of Revelation. But remember, I make a distinction between the tribulation and the book of Revelation. In other words, the book of Revelation is so much bigger than just this one period of great tribulation. Whereas some people, I think, try to cram the whole book of Revelation into the great tribulation. So I, I kind of... The, great, the tribulation part, is just, the great tribulation is just one part of the whole thing. Um, I believe it occurs as the seals are unfolding, especially towards the end, that it is still future, that believers will die, but ultimately there is victory in Jesus, which, which means we do not have to fear. So let me read again Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. Well, I'm going to read verse 10 and then jump to verse 15. So this is what these saints that have come out of the great tribulation, this is their song of praise, if you will. Beginning in verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So they're praising God and the Lamb. Verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a, what a great conclusion. And, and let, me, let me just say that our victory is not in escaping trouble in this flesh. Our victory is our glorified body in the resurrection when we will reign with him forever. That's our victory. And that's what we can rejoice in. All right.